As we go through the series, this is the second week in the series. Last week, Don kicked us off and did a great job with that, and he talked about David's call. He talked about how God selected David for a certain purpose in his life and how that call came about, how that call was made known to David, and then how we see some things in David's life that help us understand the call that God has placed on his life. And as we go through this Read Your Bible series, we want to provide you guys with tools that help you be better equipped to sit down and read your Bible on a daily basis. And the process that we use, there's an acronym that we throw up, and it's SOAP. And it stands for Scripture, Observation, Application, and Prayer. And I think I say this every time when I preach during this series, but just like we should use soap every day for our physical, personal hygiene, I think it's important that we use this process of soap every day as we sit down, as we open up God's Word, and as we try to understand not just what God's Word is about, but how it applies to our life and how we put it into practice on a daily basis to fulfill the calling that God's placed on our life. So keep that in mind as we go through all this, and I'm going to hit heavy on some of these observations and application points today, and we're going to hit really heavy on Scripture. We're going to cover a lot of Scripture today because it is read your Bible and your Bible Scripture, and so it just kind of makes sense to read that as we go through the process. But another thing I want you to keep in mind today specifically, as I address this, is not just the the SOAP acronym, but if you think back, if you've been here for a few months, we had another series a while back that was called Growing Pains. And I think as we talk about the SOAP acronym, Scripture, Observation, Application, Prayer, different aspects of this play in heavier in our walk of faith as we reach different levels of maturity. Uh, When you are young in your faith or young just in general, about all you're going to grasp is the story, the scripture. You're going to get that. And one of the things I realized, and I was brought up in church. Literally, the first place my parents took me after they brought me home from the hospital was church. Like a week later, and I've been involved in it all my life. But <clears throat> because of that, I was able to grow up and I was able to go through part of this soap process spread out over time. As I was young, I was exposed to the story. And I, I, I understood the story, whatever the story was. As I got a little older, moved up into you know, later elementary, early youth, I started to understand more of the observations that I should be drawing from the Scripture or the story. And then as I get even older, or we get older, we start to understand the application. You know, what, does, what do these points mean in my life and how do I put them into practice? So I don't know where you are in your walk of faith. I don't know if you were brought up in church. I don't know if this is your first Sunday ever in church. But just know that... It's all part of a process, and it's not an instantaneous thing, and it's all part of growth. And every time I sit down and read Scripture, I can read the same passage over and over again, no matter how familiar I am with that. And God's going to reveal new things to me, and the story that we're going to talk about today is one that everybody in here, I'm pretty sure, is going to be familiar with. We'll get to that in just a second. But covering some of what Don went over last week, and I'm not going to try to cover it all because I can't, and Don literally took us to seminary last week, uh, and he covered some heavy-hitting topics. Uh, He talked about hermeneutics, homiletics, exegesis, and eisegesis. If you have no earthly idea what those are, as best as I can remember, because I'm old and I get kind of forgetful, hermeneutics has something to do with that guy that played the lead role on the Munsters back in the 60s. Um, Homiletics, if you're from the South, you know that's a form of grits that's made out of whole corn. And I can't remember if it's exegesis or eisegesis, Scott McConnell may be more familiar with this, but it's that cream you rub on your joints when you're really sore and it makes you smell like your great-grandmother's house. 
Um, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, the joke there, Herman Monster from the Monsters. Uh, hominy is a form of grits, and I'm from the South, and I cannot stand. <laughs> and anagesic cream. No, what these things really are are all part of the process that we use to get an accurate understanding of what we feel like God is trying to say to us out of the Scripture. And we're going to delve a little bit more into that as we go. But with all that in mind, there's some things that Don talked about last week that we have to keep in mind to use as a springboard to get to where we're going today. And the first one of those is that David had a call on his life. At a very young age, God set David apart to be the future king of Israel. And the prophet went out and he, you know, went to Bethlehem and he met with Jesse, who was David's father, and he looked at all the sons and they all paraded through. And finally they got to the run of the litter, which was David, the youngest of all those. And God said, that's the one. And the thing I want you to understand as we go through this, because we have a tendency sometimes to say, well, yeah, it was David. David, God had a call on his life, but, but I'm just me, you know, treading water, doing whatever it is here in the year 2019. Newsflash for you. God's got a call for your life too. Now, it may not be to be king of a country, but wherever you are, whatever you are doing, God has a plan for your life. God has a call for you, and it's important that we understand that in light of some of the facts that we're going to look at today and understand how God wants to work through us to accomplish the things he has planned for us, not for our glory. Um, I, I get this sometime, and I, I know when you stand up here in the spotlight and you speak, people look at that and they go, oh, you know, that's so cool, I could never do that. Uh, I'm not sure how I do it sometimes. And you may ask me questions about some of the things I say when this is over, and I probably will not remember them. Because, again, God equipped me based on my call to do what I do, whether it's standing up in front of people. But there are some things that you do that I couldn't do. And, I would, and I'll be honest with you. I am not the least bit nervous standing in front of people and talking. People don't understand that if you don't do it on a regular basis. I am not nervous. But there's some of the things that you do in your life. If God put me in that position to do that and it wasn't part of my calling, I would be absolutely terrified. To me, one of the cool things about our calling in life is if we're doing what God has called us to do, there's a comfort level that comes with that. And don't confuse comfort with complacency. There's always work to be done. But when we're in that sweet spot of where God wants us to be, it's a wonderful, wonderful feeling. So God had a call for David's life, but he's got a calling for ours as well. And the thing that we see reflected in David's life that shows the uniqueness of his call was that Scripture describes David as a man after God's own heart. Now, as we look at that, and if you know anything about the life of David, it's kind of hard to understand a man after God's own heart when you understand a lot of the things that David did in his life. David was a murderer. David was a liar. David was an adulterer. And there's some other things that we could throw in there. And we know God is perfect, omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent. And we say, how can this person, this human being that had these character flaws be considered a person that was a man after God's own heart. Well, we see it in the way David approaches certain situations in his life. And we're going to look at it in light of the story that we talk about today. But the main application that we take away from Don's message last week is this. <clears throat> Excuse me. Is does your internal heart reflect the image of God? Does your internal heart reflect the image of God? Your external actions may not always reflect your internal heart but and I don't know if you guys are aware of this or not but there are sometimes 
that the external actions that people do may not accurately, accurately reflect the internal heart. They may seem like they're doing something out of the goodness of their heart or maybe be the most genuine person in the world, but what they're doing is actually a very self-serving thing. We see in David's life in the way that his internal heart reflected the image of God was in the end he really was concerned about making sure God's will was done regardless of how it affected him. So that's what we take away from last week and use as a springboard to our story for today, which is David and Goliath, that obscure passage that most of you have probably never heard of in your life. Okay, I'll be honest, when they told me I was speaking in the series and they told me what the subject matter was, I, I was very selfish in my mind. I was like, God, please let it be David and Goliath. Please let it be David and Goliath. Don't let it be some really weird part. I would have settled for David and Bathsheba. And that part, that, that one's fun too. But as I knew what we were talking about, and as I thought about the soap thing, as I reflected back about growing pains, I realized that this is the perfect story to kind of tie all those things together. And I'm not going to have you show hands, but I would be curious to see if there's anyone in here that has not heard the story of David and Goliath. The story is actually so popular that it has actually become just a common phrase that we use a lot of times especially in sports if we you know talk about this really big powerhouse team that's playing this nobody team and Don alluded to an illustration later on in my message I haven't decided if I'll use it or not but that may pop up again but you know a David and Goliath type situation or you know the person that's going out and facing what seemed to be insurmountable insurmountable odds and come out on top you know we we use this and in a lot of ways in using that we completely misunderstand what the story is all about but but let's jump in let's take a look and remember as we talk about soap the first thing we talk about is scripture now I want to take the term scripture and use it synonymously with the term the story because we're going to talk a lot today about the story of David and Goliath and if you are younger in your faith the first thing that you're gonna to start to grasp is the story. The problem with many Christians is we don't move past the story part. We know the stories. The stories are great. I, I was thinking of so many different ways I could have illustrated part of the story. I could have actually broke out an old flannel graph and used it as a visual aid. <clears throat> I thought about bringing in a piece of PVC pipe that I would stand up beside of me that would show how tall David was, I mean how tall Goliath was compared to how tall I am. Uh, I even thought about using some old VeggieTales clips because I am not too old to admit that I still think VeggieTales rock. I love VeggieTales. But then I thought, no, that maybe just will compound the problem because it might show how we can get caught up in just the story. But the story is important, but the story is the tool that we use to get us to these other more important parts, the observations, the applications, how we live our life based on what we learn. So with that in mind, let's jump into the story. Starts in 1 Samuel chapter 17. It says the Philistines, and if you're not familiar with the Philistines, the, the Philistines at this point in time were basically one of the enemies of Israel. And so Saul has gathered his army and the Philistines have gathered their army and they're meeting out, I would say in the field of battle, but you'll see the, they haven't gotten to the battle part yet. It says the Philistines were standing on one hill and the Israelites were standing on another hill with a ravine between them. So, you know, if you're going to picture in your mind the story without the use of flannel graph or any of those other cool things we have, picture Israel's army on this side, 
Philistine army on this side. I don't know if one hill was higher than the other or anything like that. We don't get those details. But there's a gully in the middle, and that's where we start this thing. And it goes on and says, Then a champion named Goliath from Gath came out from the Philistine camp. He was nine feet, nine inches tall. He wore a bronze helmet and a bronze scale, and bronze scale armor that weighed 125 pounds. There was also bronze armor on his shins and a bronze sword that was slung, was swung, yeah, slung between his shoulders. His spear staff was like a weaver's beam and the iron point of his spear weighed 15 pounds. In addition, a shield bearer was walking in front of him. So we paint this picture. See it in your mind. And based on all of this, we come to what we would call our first observation in the soap process. And that first observation is this. Goliath was really big. Okay? I mean, that's a pretty obvious illustration, isn't it? But look at all the detail Scripture provides us. Goliath was 9 feet 9 inches tall by our estimate. We don't actually know <clears throat> excuse me, how tall he was because they used a unit of measure called a cubit back then. And I've heard all sorts of you know, descriptions of how long a cubit was, but I'm using the Holman Christian Standard translation of the Bible today, and based on it, it says Goliath 9 feet 9 inches tall. Uh, he wore armor that weighed 125 pounds. Now, to put David's size into perspective, I'm 6 feet tall. So David, sorry, Goliath was 3 feet 9 inches taller than I am now. So that, you know, it's up there. Uh, his armor weighed 125 pounds. I'll give you another illustration based on the physical specimen you see standing in front of you. I have not always been as buff as I am right now. Why are you laughing? Um, I know. But when I graduated high school back in 1983, yes, high school did exist back then. But when I graduated high school, I was the exact height that I am now, six feet tall. I weighed 127 pounds. <laughs> yeah, it's bad. I mean, I turned sideways and people thought I'd left the room. Um, but I basically, when I graduated high school, weighed what Goliath's armor weighed. So it was like when he would go into battle, it would be like strapping me on his back and going and fighting. All 125 pounds of me soaking wet. So Goliath was big. He, had, he was well-equipped. And he had to be strong. We know that to tote you know, that much around. And he had to be well-trained. Why do we say that? Because he's willing to go out and take on everybody else by himself. We'll see that more in the story. But, you know, if we're going to look at observation, if we're going to start putting some facts in our basket to, you know, try to figure out some applications later on, he's really big, he was really well equipped, and he was really well trained. Keep those thoughts in mind. Now, let's move on and look at more of the scripture. So he stood and he shouted to the Israelite battle formations. Why do you come out to line up in battle formations, he asked. Am I not a Philistine and you're servants of Saul? Choose one of your men and have him come down against me. If he wins in a fight against me and kills me, we will be your servants. But if I win against him and kill him, then you will be our servants and serve us. Then the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel today. Send me a man so that we can fight each other. When Saul and all the Israel heard these words from the Philistine, they lost their courage and were terrified. Now, I'm going to stop there for just a second, just put the story in a little bit more context. <clears throat> this has been going on for like 40 days. Them on one hill, Goliath on the other. Goliath comes out, basically challenges Israel to send one guy down to the bottom of the gully for a cage match. Winner take all. Somebody's going to walk away dead was the way it was. 
And look at the response from Saul and his army. It says they were terrified by this guy. And, you know, we're kind of quick to judge thousands of years later, but if you were in the army and you were looking at a guy that's almost 10 feet tall, wearing all this army with this big old spear and all this stuff, and, you know, the, the solution is, well, just one of you has to come down and fight me, and whoever's the one that's alive at the end of the battle, they're going to win. You're probably not going to take those odds either. So Saul and his men are terrified. Well, David was too young to serve in the army. And here's one of the points I, or one of the observations I want us to get clear. Because if you've seen the flannel graph story or some of these other versions of the story of David, you've probably seen pictures of a, or drawings of a boy that looked like he's about seven or eight years old. Have you seen those? Okay, chances are, based on everything that I have read and studied, David was probably about 15 years old when this happened. We got any 15-year-olds in the house today? Uh, now, 15-year-olds vary in size and height. I've got a nephew who is 13 years old, and he's an inch taller than I am. Uh, yeah, he's got some basketball skills going on. We're excited about what he might do in the future. But David was too young to fight, and so he was the youngest of eight brothers. He was the guy that was left at home taking care of the sheep. But in those days, you had to be 20 years or older to fight for the army. And also, they didn't have a system to where they had all the food to provide for them. So the families who had folks that were fighting in the army would send rations. Rations. Now I'm even confused as which the correct pronunciation. Forget it. <clears throat> we'll move forward from this point. They were supposed to send supplies to the relatives that were fighting. So Jesse, David's father, gets stuff together, sends David out with some, you know, some bread and some cheese and some beverage, and he says, take this to your brothers. When David arrives on the scene, this thing that's taking place every day is unfolding. And so that's where we get to this. It says, David left his supplies in the care of the quartermaster and ran to the battle line. When he arrived, he asked his brothers, how were they? Or how they were. While he was speaking with them, suddenly the champion named Goliath, the Philistine from Gath, came forward from the Philistine battle line and shouted his usual words, which David heard. And here's the thing that we start to see a little bit about David being a man after God's own heart. And part of it may have to do with the fact that he's 15 years old and 15-year-olds think they're invincible and all that. But we're not going to get into that. that. That's for youth ministry. That, that's Shin's thing to deal with with that. <clears throat> I've served my time, brother. <laughs> but David volunteers. You got all these soldiers. You got the king. You got everybody around. And David hears this challenge. And he's like, oh, I got this. I will take care of this. And so he goes and he talks to Saul. And we look at this passage. It says, it says then David said, and this is him talking to the king. And picture this, 15-year-old goes talk to the king. He says, the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and may the Lord be with you. Imagine how desperate the king of Israel was that a 15-year-old boy comes in and says, hey, I'll do it. Because what is the result of this battle that's going to take place? Remember, winner take all. Whoever wins, their side becomes the leader. Whoever loses, their side becomes the slaves, the servants. Stick in whatever word you want there. But it has gotten so bad. This has gone on for so long. The king is like, eh, whatever. Go ahead. And so basically he says, David, okay, suit up, boy. Your number's up. You're going in. 
And they actually physically try to suit David up. Because remember, Goliath's got all this armor, big bronze helmet, bronze shields, bronze sword, spear point weighs 15 pounds, spear shafts like a weaver's beam. I have no idea what one of those looks like if you're wondering. So don't ask me that question. <clears throat> we can find out. But King Saul is like, okay, let, let's bring my armor and put on him. So they literally bring the king's armor and try to put it on David. And this is probably where it becomes more comical if you think about it as him being seven or eight years old. But 15 years old, it might have kind of fit. We don't know how tall he was. But as David puts on all this stuff, he realizes he's like, this is not going to work. I'm not used to wearing this. I've never fought with this type stuff. And plus, I've, you know, I've had my own little battles. I've, I've killed a bear. I've killed a lion. God's worked through me to do that. And so finally, he basically tells Saul, this isn't going to work. Let me do it my way. And so he goes out, if you read the passage, and I encourage you to do it because I can't cover all the scripture today, but he goes out, he goes to a brook, which is a stream or a creek or a creek or whatever you call it, where you come from, and he gathers, scripture tells us, five smooth stones. Now this is another observation, this is another fact. He picks up not four, not six, but five smooth stones, and the stones are smooth. So, you know, we're getting all this information. This has got to be important, right? <clears throat> so he gets that, and then he goes out, and I love this part. He gets ready to go into battle, and he goes, and just picture this. Goliath, you know, finally sees somebody step out. They're in their line. Israel's in their line. This, this person steps out. So Goliath's like, great, I get to kill somebody today. And I don't know if that's exactly what he's thinking, but if I'm nine foot nine inches tall and I've been challenging people for 40 days, that's probably what I'm going to think. Finally, I get to put these skills to use. So they walk down into the ravine, and what does he see? This boy. And he is so insulted by the fact that a boy's there, he actually says, you know, who am I that you guys would send a dog to fight me, basically? But look at what David says to him. As David said to the Philistine, you come against me with a dagger, spear, and sword, but I come against you in the name of Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel's armies. You have defied him. Today, the Lord will hand you over to me. Today, I will strike you down, cut your head off, and give the corpse of the Philistine camp to the birds of the sky and the creatures of the earth. Then all the world will know that Israel has a God, and this whole assembly will know that it is not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves for the battle is the Lord's. He will hand you over to us. Spoiler alert. That's exactly how it happens. But in this passage of Scripture, in David's mind, the battle has already taken place. Because guess what? In God's mind, it already had to. God already knew what the outcome was going to be of the situation. And so David just basically says, Look, dude, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to cut your head off. We're going to feed your bodies to the birds. And it's not going to be because of what I've done. It's going to be because of God, because the battle is the Lord's. And that is something that we see in this passage, that even at this young age, at 15 years of age, we start to see how David was a man after God's own heart. Had he killed a, a lion and a bear while he was helping take care of the sheep? Yeah. But even then, he didn't see that as something that he had done. He had seen that as something that God had done through him. And as he stood on that field of battle that day, he stood there with the full assurance that God was in control and that 
what happened that day was going to be a result of God working through him, not anything that he was going to do in and of his own power, skills, or abilities. So, as we think about what Don talked about last week, exegesis, pop that one up there. Oh, the battle. I, I kind of ruined that for you. But yeah, David wins. Chops off Goliath's head with a sword. They rout the Philistines. And everything turns out much different than Goliath and the Philistines thought it would that day. But now as we wrap up the story and as we start moving from Scripture to observation and application, this is why we need to understand the importance of exegesis and understanding things in context and why that's more important than eisegesis when it comes to our observations with Scripture. <clears throat> in brief layman's terms, exegesis is the taking and looking at Scripture, looking at the words, looking at the context, looking at what is being said and drawing our conclusions based on what we have in front of us. And that is the approach that we are supposed to take. The approach that unfortunately we take sometimes is eisegesis. And I always thought it was interesting, even though the E is there, we, we pronounce that I because I is more about me. I is what I think of with this. And in eisegesis, we tend to look at Scripture, but then we tend to draw in things that may not actually apply. And what we do in eisegesis is we don't take the context into context, and we draw conclusions based on how we want the outcome to be. And there's a big problem with that, because when we're doing that, we're sort of following our approach to things and not God's approach to what He's wanting to do in and through us. So as we look at the observations, as we look at this passage of Scripture that we've looked at so far, let's look at some of the things that we've observed and understand what our observations should be in light of these things. Okay. Contrary to what you may have thought growing up, something that does not matter in this passage of Scripture is how tall Goliath was. How do we know this? Well, what if Goliath was an inch taller or an inch shorter? Would the outcome of the story be different? Um, does it matter really how young or how short or how tall David was? Not really because we don't actually know how young he was, or how old he was, or how tall he was, or how short he was. Well, how about those stones? Because that, that passage of Scripture is very specific in saying that he picked up five smooth stones. What, what if he had only picked up four? What if he had picked up six? Uh, what if they wouldn't have been smooth? What if they would have been rough? Would that have affected the outcome? Uh, no. What affected the outcome of this whole story was the approach David took to things. Now, you know, are these facts that we need to take a look at, do they help us understand the story a little better? Yes, but they're not what determine the outcome. And a great example of this, <clears throat> as we talk about David and Goliath, because we get these examples uh, throughout history where we use this term David and Goliath to explain situations. This is the illustration Don didn't like this morning. But... Years ago, there's a little football team from a little town up in the North Carolina mountains uh, from a little college called Appalachian State. Wow, you already know where we're going with this. Um, <clears throat> and the very first game of college football season, there's a little school up in Michigan by the name of Michigan that decided to schedule rinky-dink little Appalachian State as their opening game in their house or their stadium they call the Big House because... You know, it's your first game of the season and you want to bring a pushover in that you can just beat the snot out of and feel great about yourself because you were the bully and you picked on the little kid. 
and I don't normally watch. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not an Appalachian State fan. I don't have anything against them. It's just I, I pull for the University of North Carolina Tar Heels. Before we say anything, I know our football team stinks. Hopefully it's better this year. And my second favorite team is Clemson. Come at me with something there. Hmm, okay. <clears throat> but uh, <laughs> it was the first game of the season, and I just decided to sit down and watch this game. I remember turning on the TV and I was like, oh, it's Appalachian and Michigan. This is going to be a blowout. <laughs> and it was, but not the way we thought it was going to be. Appalachian State beat the snot out of Michigan. And suddenly, you know, all the newspapers, all the ESPN commentators, it's David and Goliath. And, and you know, we start looking at that little guy facing big guy, and we draw all these conclusions, we make these observations. And the fact of the matter about that game was, regardless of which team was which, now we know which team should have won, but the team that won is the team that scored the most points. Played the better game. That was, you know, that's the observation in that, but the other thing we have to be careful of about drawing our own conclusions, and I use another sports example for this, and guys, you'll understand this. You've got your favorite team, and your favorite team is on a winning streak. So every time you watch the game, you wear your certain jersey that you always wear, and you sit on that certain part of the couch that you always sit on, and you drink that certain beverage that you always drink, and you wear those socks that you haven't washed in three weeks. Because you know if you do those things, the game's going to turn out exactly the way you want it to. Well, I hate to burst your bubble, but for every guy that's doing that for Team A, there's some other guy for Team B that's wearing his special jersey and sitting on his special seat on the sofa and drinking his special beverage and wearing his socks that maybe he hasn't washed in seven weeks. None of those things you do have any outcome or any determination on the outcome of those events. Just like these observations are not what's most important. So... If we're going to move from things that don't matter, what are things that do matter with this passage of Scripture? What are the observations that we need to see if we're going to make proper application for our life? The first one is this. David recognized that the source of his strength was also the one who had placed a calling on his life. As he stood in front of Goliath, yeah, he said, I'm going to kill you and cut your head off. But he didn't say, it's because my parents don't know this. And while I've been out with the sheep, I've been training, you know, for American Ninja and learning all these skills. He's like, no, God's going to do this. He understood God had called him and God was at work in his life. And anything that was going to happen there that day was going to be a result of God doing something, not him. And it's very important to keep this in mind as we move toward the application part of this. Because I really feel like looking at all this, the application for this passage of Scripture is this. Our focus as believers needs to be on following God and the call that He's placed on our life. Now, does that mean we don't pay attention to details? Does that mean we don't, you know, do the things God calls us to do or, you know, prepare ourselves in certain ways? No. But ultimately, we've got to understand that if God is in control and God is leading and God is guiding, then God is going to do what God wants to do in our life, not for our glory, but for His. Here at Journey, we, we have a, a purpose, and it drives everything that we do, and it's to humbly point everyone to absolute hope. And as we close this time out today, the thing that I want to really challenge you with as we look at this application is this. Whether you believe it or not, God has a calling for your life. God has a plan and a purpose for you. It might not be to be king of a nation, you know, and it might not be to ever be famous or popular or achieve anything that other people are ever really going to recognize you for. 
But that does not mean that God's calling for you and your life is not important. And it also does not mean that we can just go out and live any way that we want to live. We need to live our lives in light of the fact that God wants to accomplish something through us. And to put it in the most basic terms, I really believe what God wants to accomplish through every one of us who follow Him as a believer in Christ is He wants to work through us to humbly point others to absolute hope. And that absolute hope is Jesus Christ. Now, how He wants to do that in your life each day and in my life each day, I don't know because I haven't lived tomorrow. But God has. I don't know the outcome of what's going to happen in my life at the end of this week, but God knows. So those little details of how many stones and how big my opponent is or how small I may be, while those are all factors that play into my daily life, they are not the thing that determine the ultimate outcome of my life. What determines the ultimate outcome of my life is, am I following God's call? And am I allowing God on a daily basis to work through me to reach the people that I come in contact with. I can't answer that question for you. I can only answer it for me, and I can tell you that some days I do better than others. Some days I feel like I'm really in that sweet spot of what God wants me to do, and I'm doing those things, and I'm happy about it, and I feel my most comfortable, and there are other days I fail miserably. But God is still God. Jesus Christ is still our only form of absolute hope. And that calling has not changed to go out and reach people. Take a little side note from where I went. And I joke with people whenever I stand up and speak, especially when I do two messages back to back, they never turn out the same. But maybe this is just the thing that I feel like we need to hear. God has things he wants to do in and through us. God has things he wants to do in and through Journey Church. And as we look around, there are still empty seats. So that means our job is not done. We are still here as individuals in our church, so our work is not finished. There are still people that we're going to come in contact with that still need to know about the absolute hope of Christ. And in some of those situations, you're going to feel like you're David going up against Goliath. But the good news is, God is on our side, and the same God that delivered David from the bear and the lion, the same God that worked through David to accomplish what he did on the battlefield against Goliath, is the same God that works in and through us today to accomplish his will and his way in our life, not for our glory, but for his glory, and so that we can help bring other people to the point that they know him as we know him. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the fact that you are God and you are in control. And Lord, I pray that you will just help us as we face the situations that we come across each day in life to understand that they may not go the way that we want them to, but nothing ever catches you by surprise. And Lord, I just pray that you'll lead us and guide us and give us the strength that David had to allow you to work through us to bring honor and glory to your name in each and every situation. We love you. We pray that you'll guide us as we go from this place. Be with our team that's coming back from Kenya. Just protect them as they travel. And Lord, just help us to help others see you and us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.